Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Well, yesterday we're going to continue with uh, looking at the parables, and today we're looking at the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, who loves stories? Who loves stories? Who's, who's watching a series on TV at the minute? I suspect most of us. Who's, who's engrossed in a great novel right now? I know I am. I've, uh, one of my goals for 2022, I'm trying to truck it through this month, is to read The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. I've always wanted to read it. Um, and it's been brought into sharper relief to me how brilliant Jesus is at telling stories because he does in three verses what it takes some classic novels to do in sort of a thousand and, you know, 50 pages. Um, it is, it's brilliant and well worth it, but um, there's a, G- Jesus's parables are like the espresso version. You sort of, you get it in three verses and it's very profound. Uh, we, we love stories, right? Stories give meaning, they give shape to our lives, they give shape to how we engage with the world. The Bible, right, is, is the greatest story. And, uh, and, I, and I just love this about the parables of, of Jesus is that he, he kind of takes these like incredible, profound theological truths and these truths about who we are and how we sort of work in the world. And he shrinks them right down to these like easily recallable, short little stories. I heard one person say that parables are um, earthly stories about heavenly truths. And I think that's really, really um, appropriate. So Jesus is a master storyteller. Um, and if you think about something like the boy who cried wolf, right, one of Aesop's fables, it's not actually, as far as we know, right, it's not based on actual events that happened. It, it's a fairy tale, right? But is it true? Does it contain truth, right? And sometimes we're not very good in our sort of mindset. We want everything to be a sort of factual, blue-by-blue account of what happened, but there's a different kind of truth, and so in this parable, like any of the others, they may not be, Jesus is not, try, is not saying this is exactly what I saw happen just now, which is what we always want in our kind of modern mindset. We want a factual account of what happened and then we'll decide for ourselves what to take from that. There's a deeper kind of truth that Jesus is conveying here. So this actual event probably didn't happen like this, but it's still true, right? There's still like a profound truth for us to capture in the midst of it. So Today, we're going to look at what truth does Jesus have for us in this uh, beautiful parable. And this is one of the better known parables. Sorry, I've got new glasses, so I'm still trying to sort of, they keep sliding off my nose a little bit. Thank you. So if I do this a lot, it's not because I'm trying to look smart or something. Um, so yeah, this is one of the, the, the better known of all the parables. And uh, that can also almost make it like difficult for us who have grown up listening to it to kind of come back to the heart of what Jesus is saying. Like we're so familiar with it that we're like, oh yeah, the Pharisee's the bad guy and the tax collector, you know, he did the right thing and, you know, great kind of. But there's so much when we, when we dig into it that is helpful for us to, to kind of take away. So is that okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through some of the contextual stuff and try to translate it for us in 2022 and then look at how we might respond to that. So the first thing to, to point out is the setting of this parable. It says two men went up to the temple to pray up in Jerusalem. You know, the temple was on a hill. They're going up to the temple. And when you say to pray, we often think of that in the private devotional sense, right? I, I'm going to my room to pray or I'm going to, to the prayer room to pray. But in the, in the Arab world, a Christian might say to their friend, I'm going to church to pray. 
And they would understand that that actually carries with it both, both the sense of private devotion, but also public worship. So that one word to pray here actually means, really, I'm, I'm going to church to worship. So if Jesus were telling this parable today, he might say, uh, you know, Chris and Caris were coming to Emmaus Road, right? This, this could be the setting of this parable, two people going to a public worship service. Now, who are these two people, I hear you ask? Who is a Pharisee, really, and who is a tax collector? Let's look at the Pharisee first. I have to be careful not to be too Northern Irish. The Pharisee. <laughs> the Pharisee. Um, But the Pharisees were a group within um, Judaism, one of the most important, one of the most influential religious uh, political parties of Judaism at the time of Jesus. And they were strict adherents to the Old Testament law. These guys knew the, the Old Testament law probably by heart, most of them. And they were deeply, deeply um, worried about honoring God in the right way. They really wanted to get it right. Now, here's the thing, right? So if you hear the parable of the Good Samaritan, who's the bad guy? The Pharisee, right? And, and it's easy for us to grow up with this idea that they've always been perceived that way, like the Pharisees were the bad guys, right? But it's actually more complicated than that. The truth is the Pharisees were probably liked and respected by most of the Jewish community. They were kind of seen as the um, epitome of righteousness. They were kind of seen like the people you should try and emulate to many of them. And even in, uh, in Luke 13, you know, a few chapters before this, a group of Pharisees come and warn Jesus that Herod wants to come and kill him. So the Pharisees are not just simply to be written off as the bad guys. The truth is they were upstanding, respected, philanthropic. Um, as this, this guy will, will come to him in a second, he takes it even further. But the, these were the people that did everything the law required them to do. And they, they were therefore seen as righteous. And righteousness in the Old Testament kind of understanding is so much more than just following a code of conduct, following rules, getting the rules right. Righteousness really um, would have been more interpreted as living in right relationship. So if a king granted someone righteousness, it was like he was granting them permission to be in his presence. You understand it's different than just, oh, he's ticked all the boxes. It's more like I'm giving this person something. I'm giving them righteousness so that they can be around me. And so righteousness was this construct through which you would engage appropriately with the people around you, the place around you, even the animals around you. If you look at the law, you know, it's, it's how you engage appropriately. You have the right relations to everything going on around you. But this Pharisee has got a little bit caught up in the uh, other understanding, which is following all the right rules. So how would you describe a Pharisee today? Well, I think you could describe a Pharisee today as someone who believes the Bible, reads the Bible regularly, someone who attends church every week, someone who is concerned with uh, being above reproach, someone who wants to do right by others, someone who cares deeply about not offending God. Now, does this sound like anyone? I would be pretty happy to be described with all of those things so far. Anyone else? It's okay to raise your hand, right? Someone who wants to conduct themselves uh, well in their personal affairs, in their professional affairs, someone who is sought for advice from others, someone who is seen as being uh, approachable, someone that you would go to for advice. This is someone who, you know, we could kind of use as an as a analogy for a Pharisee today, and I suspect that describes many of us sitting here in church today. 
And this Pharisee, he goes the extra mile. So what does he say? He says that he fasts twice a week and he gives a tenth of all that he gets. Now, the interesting thing about that is the law actually didn't require them to fast twice a week. I think they were supposed to fast uh, for you know, before each of the main festivals, and then the Pharisees would do a little bit more than that. But this guy goes like, you know, he if if the law is a garden, and the Pharisees generally built a fence around the garden to make sure that the flowers didn't get trampled on. This guy builds a fence around the fence, right? He he is so above reproach. So he fasts twice every week, which is not a requirement of the law. He just wants to do that to be as righteous as he can. And he gives a tenth of all that he gets. Now, again, the law didn't require you to tithe a tenth of all that you get. Now, we think about money, but they had, uh, they had sort of currency. They also had food and provisions, things, and they were expected to tithe from certain parts of all of those different things. And if you, you know, read the Old Testament laws, there's all kinds of stipulations around that. But he just blanket gives a tenth of everything that comes into his possessions. This guy is someone who's going the extra mile. But listen to his prayer. Listen to what he says. First of all, he stands by himself. And this, the implication here is that he kind of puts himself out at front. He comes right down to the front where people can see him. Stands by himself, sets himself apart. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. <laughs> Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. There's so much that's, ooh, not okay about this. I hope I've never prayed like that. And the funny thing is, this actually doesn't even qualify as a prayer by uh, Jewish standards of the time, which would have included repentance of sin, always, thankfulness for uh, God's bounty towards you, right? That, that, those are the kind of things that prayer <laughs> included. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, thank you that I'm not like other people. Even like this tax collector. He's so blinded by his own righteousness that he doesn't see what's really going on here. Um, it's, it's almost like he's lost something. He's lost the ability to relate appropriately to God and to those around him. And by that definition of righteousness that I talked about, he's actually not, not operating very righteously, is he? Now let's look for a second at the tax collector. Tax collectors were despised by their fellow Jews. They were Jews themselves, but they were despised. And harsh as it might seem, I think probably the, the help, most helpful analogy for our modern understanding is to think of... Um, a Nazi collaborator in the Second World War. You know, if you're watching a, a movie, reading a book about the Second World War, there'll often be, you know, French town mayors or something that are collaborating with the Nazi officers and sort of spying and telling secrets on their own people for their own gain. That's kind of how I think first century Jews viewed tax collectors. And if you notice, as the Pharisee has done, but if you read throughout the Gospels, tax collectors are often grouped in those kind of lists of sinners. So adulterers, robbers, thieves, uh, prostitutes, tax collectors, they're often like seen in that kind of category. So this was, this was not an honorable profession to be involved in. They were seen as swindlers. They weren't seen as trustworthy. And often um, in taxing their own people, they would overcharge and keep the, uh, the extra for themselves. These were people who were despised. And yet Jesus uh, loved 
tax collectors. Think about Zacchaeus, right, who was up a tree, and Jesus, to the dismay of those around him, goes to Zacchaeus' house. Matthew, the disciple Matthew, was a tax collector. So Jesus had plenty of space in his heart and in his schedule for tax collectors. Now let's look at this tax collector in particular. But the tax collector stood at a distance. It's not the same implication this time. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Is this profound awareness of his own brokenness and his own emptiness before God. He's not concerned about others. He's not listing things about people around him. He's just focused on his own brokenness before God. And this image of beating his breast is a very kind of aggressive one, isn't it? It's not used very often in the Bible, and one of the few times that it is used is at the crucifixion. It says that some of the people who who watched Jesus die went home and beat their breasts in sorrow. It's just this incredibly kind of um, just stark image. In in the brothers Karamazov, part part that I've just read, you've got these three brothers, and the oldest brother, Dimitri, gets to this point where he's just at the end of his rope, and he has no recourse left to marry the woman that he loves to sort of um, get even with his father, who is a very nasty man. Uh, he runs out of money, and he has no way of getting anymore. He's just—he's completely and utterly at the end of his rope. And it says in that novel that he beat his breast. And I do wonder if Dostoevsky had some of this biblical imagery in mind when he wrote that. He stands at a distance. He would not even look up. For us, that's like standing here and not even being able to look up during worship and read the words and take part. We're so aware of our own shortcomings. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I realized as I was reading this story, I've been conscious for a few years of a tradition in the Orthodox Church of praying what they called the Jesus prayer. And it goes like this. It goes, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is very much a uh, a staple part of of their faith. They pray it loads. And it's it's, it's actually really popular. If you you go and Google the Jesus prayer, you can watch all kinds of helpful videos and things about it. And it it becomes almost this like um, repetitive, contemplative kind of prayer that people use. And it's actually based on on this passage, there's something so profound about the tax collector's prayer that it's become a huge part of, of the Orthodox faith for centuries, the Jesus prayer. An interesting thing about this parable is that it's both introduced and concluded, which is not typical of many of the parables. The introduction doesn't come from Jesus, it comes from uh, the writer of the Gospel of Luke. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And so he's telling us, the apostle is telling us very directly who this parable was told to by Jesus. It's people who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on others. And then this parable is concluded. So you've actually only got these, out of the five verses, only the three in the middle are the parable itself. Jesus offers an explanation at the end. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, made righteous, if you will. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, 
and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Despite all of his outward righteousness and all of the things that he was doing in accordance with Old Testament law, the Pharisee did not please God. He did not go home justified. And yet, despite all of his brokenness and mess, and none of this is to excuse, I mean, the tax collector didn't live a good life. He was doing an unrighteous job and who knows what else. It's not to excuse that, but despite all of that brokenness and mess, there's something about how he conducts himself in that church service that is profoundly pleasing, that resonates with the heart of God. Why is this? Well, I think it's very simple. I think it's pride. It's pride. It's the pride of the Pharisee that prevents him from being justified before God in this story. And pride uh, is a theme throughout the Bible. In fact, God's opposition to pride and his love of humility is, is a constant theme, both in the Old and the New Testament. To take just one example of many, uh, Psalm 138.6 says that though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the pride. I don't know about you, but I certainly don't want God to keep his distance from me. When we read Philippians 2, uh, there's a beautiful uh, section. Um, it's, called, it's one of the Christ hymns of the New Testament. It's one of Paul's kind of almost songs of worship to who Jesus is. And in that, it talks about Christ's humility. And it says that he emptied himself. He did not count equality with God, this Jesus who is God, something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. There is something so incredibly humble about Jesus when asked what the greatest sin is, uh, C.S. Lewis had a crystal clear response, as you might expect from him. There is one vice of which no one in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, yet which hardly anyone ever imagines that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes someone more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teaching, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all those other things are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great thinkers of the church, also uh, wrote about how pride, in his view, was the utmost sin of humanity. And pride can manifest itself in a whole bunch of different ways. The first is that you think you're better than others. Now, lay aside all humility for a few seconds. When you're out on the road, driving around in your car, do you think you have a correct interpretation of the highway code and that you're, on average, one of the best drivers on the road? <laughs> Hands in the air. Come on, come on. Thank you, yes, okay. <clears throat> do you think that you're probably smarter than the average person? Hands up. Come on. 
bit of false humility going on here, I think. <laughs> Who thinks the way they vote is the right way? <laughs> Getting dangerous now. <laughs> but seriously, there's a myriad of ways in which we're not even, we're, we're not even conscious of a pride in ourselves that we actually, we know the right way to do this. Who thinks you know the right way to cook a chili, right? Some of us, some, Sue Leach right there. Um, I've tried it, I can tell you it's good. Um, some of it is harmless, right? But it's probably happening in ways that we're not even conscious of. I've had, I've had to be really careful about this in my life. I've, I've definitely, I have a propensity to be too proud of my abilities, my achievements. I have to really watch myself on this one, and it can creep in in really subtle ways. Pride is deceitful, right? And the whole point of something that is deceitful is what? You don't, you don't know. It's, it's deceptive, right? And so if you think you have a handle on this, it's probably just as likely that you're being deceived by your own pride. So you think you're better than others in a number of ways. Pride can also manifest itself by never being satisfied always wanting more because when it's pride, it's not just about what you have, it's about what you have in relation to others so that you can continue to be proud of what you have that others don't. Pride can manifest itself when you crave influence and power in whatever sphere it is that you work in or that you operate in even if the outward motives might seem like good ones. The chances are, if you have CEO in your job title, if you have head of something in your job title, if you've won an award for something, you're much more at danger of pride than those that you lead and those that are below you, right? You're much more at danger of it. We must be really careful with this stuff. And the funny thing is, right, this works in every direction. Maybe you live on very little. You make very little uh, sort of carbon footprint. You, you damage sort of the environment in a very small way. You're, uh, you're very progressive in your beliefs, right? You can still be proud. This, you see what I'm saying? This can work both ways because then you can think, I'm actually better than others because I'm doing this the right way. I'm making less. You know, pride can creep in in any circumstance, Another way that pride can um, affect you is that it can distance you from God, as we read, right, in that psalm. God, there's something about pride that God just cannot abide. It, it actually puts a distance between you and God, and it can also make you vulnerable to the devil, whose own chief sin was what? Pride, right? Ultimately, you can become blind to your own pride, blind to being able to identify it in yourself and it just becomes a vicious cycle. It becomes worse and worse. But it's not sustainable, right? Eventually, the fall will come. I love how it's phrased in the message in Proverbs 16, 18. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. See, this parable is not something that we read and we check off at one point in our lives. As with all of Jesus' teaching, it's something that we must continually come back to. We must continually come back to and submit our hearts 
to him, search me, O Lord. We must keep coming back to this stuff. A simple parable, yes, but profound, ongoing truth for each of us. We must recognize our own need and depend on the mercy of God to make it right, not on our own abilities, not on our own achievements. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Exalted here is is the idea of being lifted to God. I wonder if we could respond to this idea of pride, this idea of humility. Ban, feel free to, to join me. And I suspect that I don't need to make it more complicated than simply talking about which of these two camps you might fall into today. Maybe you're here and you feel like the tax collector. Maybe you are profoundly aware of your own sinfulness, your own brokenness, your own emptiness today, your own inability to fix whatever it is that is going on. You feel powerless before what's happening. And maybe you need to come today and just pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and cast yourself on him again, and God will immediately respond to you. I suspect for the majority of us, we might feel a little bit more like the Pharisee today in some way. And maybe as I've been talking, you've identified an area, small or big, in which you realize, oh yeah, you know what? I've let, I've let some pride creep in here. I've become too confident in my own abilities. I've become too comfortable in my own achievements, my own successes. And I'm actually operating in a spirit of pride in this way. But here's the good news, right? God's grace is for the Pharisee as well as the tax collector. This parable is not the end of the story. There is always grace. There is always mercy. And so maybe today, if you find yourself feeling more like the Pharisee, you also need to pray the Jesus prayer. And we're going to put it up on the screen. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me a sinner. Embrace humility. Come back to the simplicity of seeing yourself before God. A sinner saved by grace. Let's take a few minutes just as the band play in our own quietness to just reflect on this message. Go over the parable again in your head. Ask God to reveal something to you. Spirit of God, I pray that you would come now to meet with each of us. Invite you, Spirit of God.
wonder if we could respond like this. We've got a little bit of time, so we're, we're not in a rush. Let's, uh, let's all stand. And if today you are in that first camp and you feel like the tax collector and you're at the end of your row, wonder if you would just invite someone around you, maybe that you came with, or if not, come and find uh, Joel or one of us down at the front, maybe his way. And we'd love to pray with you. But if you find yourself in the second camp and you feel a bit more like the Pharisee today and you want to repent of an area of pride that you've allowed to creep in, I wonder if you would do something really brave and as a, as a physical way of showing that repentance, I wonder if you would kneel or come down to the front and begin to just pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. gather back and, and sing in a few moments but for now let's just let's just do the work we need to do with the Lord in our own hearts Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God have mercy on me a sinner Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Keep kneeling, keep praying, if that's what you'd like to do, but the band are going to lead us now.